Welcome to Writing It, a podcast by Ed Adams. The Triangle, episode 15, a novel by Ed Adams. Amelia gets personal. Amelia Brophy was still in London. She had decided that the chaos around Jake's flat was Russian-inspired. Amelia knew the modus operandi of the Russians and their more basic level of training. She was normally very dispassionate about her work, but she knew for sure that the only reason the Russians would be handling the situation with Jake Lambers was because they thought they had killed him back in France. Amelia had been careful with her hotel room preparations back in Cannes. She had set a trap based on what she knew would be a lot of smoke and feathers following any attempt to assassinate whatever lay under the bedclothes in the room. She had set up the bed carefully so that anything fired into the simulated mass of her sleeping body would cause the assailant to leave hurriedly. She therefore knew that the Russians would have thought that they had killed her and were now attempting to finish off Jake. Amelia decided she would now create some disruption on the way to capturing the ringleaders of the attempt on her life. She considered it very uncivil to one minute be offered drinks and the next for the same people to be regarding her as a target practice. Amelia needed to set a trap if she was to capture the Russians. She started by phoning a number in Saudi Arabia. Someone she knew would be looking for large amounts of extra cash. She was going to create a scene in London designed to jeopardise the very operation at the heart of her contract. They were playing rough with her. She would now do the same back to them. She was going to create a situation where two parties both thought the other had the data that Jake had acquired. Amelia didn't need the information any longer. She was going to create some havoc to send a signal that she didn't want to be messed with. Amelia knew her actions would be seriously irritating to both major international players, and she needed to be careful how she handled the situation. Her move would be to pretend to each group that she was working for the other side. By calling the Saudi Arabian contract, she was telling them that she had information about the whereabouts of the coded data which Darren Collins had produced, and which Jake had subsequently recorded. She then did a similar call, but this time to the Russians. She explained that she had the disk and the data which they needed. Aware of the fireworks it could create, she invited both groups to meet her in London. Dylan. Sounds a bit like Collins? Fredrickson made his way to the Foreign and Commonwealth Club, near to the embankment in central London. He would be meeting a new associate there, one who came highly recommended and for whom Fredrickson had already run comprehensive checks to validate. He knew there were a couple of suspended meeting rooms in the club, on the first floor accessed via a walkway. They added a sense of drama to the meeting he was about to conduct. He had selected one of these rooms for a meeting and deliberately arrived early to take a seated position facing towards the door of the meeting room. At the appointed time, his guest arrived. Fredrickson knew his guest would be accompanied, but that courtesy and protocol would mean that whoever else he brought would be waiting downstairs. Mr. Lennon, he said, as he greeted his guest, so good of you to come. Dylan was a well-known man about town. His profile was a little flashy, and he featured frequently in the tabloids and weekly magazines. He had made money from music and fashion at a whole string of companies and miscellaneous interests. Fredrickson had met Dylan before on two occasions and had been weighing up the possibilities of using him as a new part of the laundering operation. Fredrickson had decided to split the previous node operated by Darren Collins into two pieces, 
He was using upscale interests for one part and needed someone else who could front the more ragged elements of the Collins Empire. That's where Dylan came in. Fredrickson spent the next 45 minutes speaking to Dylan. He explained that there was a large sum of money to be made and that the income was regular and the nature of the business transactions was mainly virtual. Dylan did not need to hold stock and Fredrickson's associates would supply the necessary processes for the transacting of business. There would be a need for some specific undertakings from Dylan, including a cause that permitted a rapid revocation of the whole deal in the case of anything untoward. This had to be pre-signed and was an unconditional aspect of the negotiation. Dylan listened intently to the offer. He was very interested and had been hoping that something like this was possible based upon the previous discussions with Fredrickson. He knew that there were probably shady aspects to the deal, but many of his other agreements were also borderline, so this was no significant exception. He explained he would need to consider and to check with his legal people, and he needed a small amount of time for this. Fundamentally, Dylan believed that he was asked to be a, a clearinghouse for someone else's money, and that he could take a percentage of the money. The offer was highly attractive to Dylan, but he realised that there would be some downside, and that this probably relates to personal risk. Do this well, keep a low profile in these transactions, and you will have nothing to worry about, came Fredrickson's reply. Dylan and Fredrickson agreed to meet two days later to finalise the arrangements. Fredrickson was close to restarting the entire Darren Collins organisation under its new management. Sand and Vodka Storm Amelia Brophy had decided to create a big storm in London. Always professional, she had taken the recent attempt to kill her as both a personal situation but also a professional one which required deflection. Creating an incident where two sets of oppositional people were accidentally introduced to one another would create a distraction, and she could also usefully study the aftermath. She had already called both groups. The point was to get them to the same location in the knowledge that each group would not want to see the other one. Rofi knew that the Russians were using the Blue Flame Network to launder their money. The sources of their funds were various types of organised crime, and the money that needed reprocessing was of a semi-industrial proportion. In the case of the Saudis, the money was genuinely industrial, but the source was rather more straightforward. Oil. And the motive was pure greed rather than a broad study of vice in the way of the Russians. Amelia had selected an upmarket location in Kensington for the forthcoming event. She knew that she would need careful orchestration because the two groups would need to see one another, think one another had the information, and then watch as sparks flew, probably quite literally. There would be a couple of days' delay before the players were in place, and Amelia would need some helpful support of her own for the situation she was about to contrive. Chuck Manners had decided to move back to the surveillance station near the American Embassy. His position in the overall situation was improving. He had met two of Jake's associates, had tagged them both with tracker chips and followed them to a London location. One of them had moved on to a second location and then returned and both of them had headed away on the Eurostar, probably to Paris. The long pause at one of the locations had allowed Manners to track down the disk drive from Jake's MacBook and he now had the code. He also had the addresses of both the individuals based upon their movements around London. Next, he would identify their cell phones, and these would give him a better beacon on where they had gone to next. Chuck's manners started with Big C and quickly found the cell phone information. It would take a while to trace it via telephone billing records to see where the most recent calls originated. 
for the second cell phone, he had to trace firstly the address where the tracker had visited, then the electoral roll, which gave him three different names, and then the cross-check of the cell phones. Three different names, one female and two males. He now had a name, Claire Crafts. He would check this as well as David Jenkins, which he assumed was the real name of Claire's accomplice at the sushi bar. The next stage took hours to track down the recent telephone records. He had access to the telephone billing systems, but as he suspected, the calls were now emanating from abroad, at least for one of the phones. Strangely, though, the second phone was generating calls from the London area, most recently on the M4 motorway and then back in central London. By returning to Biggs' flat, Manners was now able to try phoning the convergent numbers in Claire's recent cell phone call list. Manners called the cell phone number he had tracked and was answered by Rick. Salesman Rick wasn't interested at all in Manners' attempt at accident reinsurance and soon hung up. Now Manners just had to watch for Rick's departure from the flat. He now had someone who was communicating with Claire Craft's phone. Sure enough, Rick was heading out for the evening. Manners followed, principally to get a sense of the individual's area of operation. Following him led to a club in Farringdon. The club was lively and loud, with two friendly-looking security standing outside. The person he was following was waved straight inside, but as Manners approached, he was stopped. This is a private party, said one of the overcoated men. Do you have an invitation? Manners didn't, and realised his chance to get inside was limited. I'm here to say Jake Lambers, he hazarded. Please wait here, said the first man in an overcoat, while we check this out. Manners knew he could barge past these individuals, but judged it unwise to create attention at this point. This line of inquiry was secondary to his main plan, which would be to follow the trail overseas and locate whatever Collins was hiding. Rick had turned around when he heard Jake's name, but decided it was better to keep going. Jake had been concerned about something. The last thing he needed now was to find someone tailing him to the club. Inside Fabric, there was a loud club track playing. Rick smiled when he recognised it as Claire's good friend, Christina Knott, with her distinctive vocals, but a mix of the song he'd never heard before. Rick looked out for Jake and found that he was already seated at a small table in a rather comfortable part of the club. Fabric played loud music in the main bar area, but had a separate chill zone close to a restaurant where Jake was seated. Rick moved to Jake in the quieter area and immediately explained about the person who had been following him to the club. Hey Jake, I do get it about the car, the smashed up flat, and the danger and all. You'll have to explain it all to me some other time. Right now, I think you'd better go, said Rick. I don't think you'll be safe here, and the longer you stay, the greater the chance that the person following me will get inside. Rick's choice of an exclusive club had introduced a delay to manners. Jake examined escape routes and worked out the kitchens offered the best route. Hey, I owe you big time, Jake quietly slipped away, leaving Rick in the club. Manners had worked out that the club was exclusive, but the restaurant was less so. By agreeing to book an immediate meal, he was able to get inside without further scuffle. Within five minutes, he was inside and looking for the person he'd been following. He spotted him, sitting alone, apparently reading a drinks menu. At that exact moment, Rick looked up and stared directly at Manners, then gestured to him to come over. Manners was slightly taken aback by this, but walked across. Hi, said Rick. I think I saw you outside a few minutes ago. You were asking about Jake Lambers. He's a friend of mine, or was. That's right, said Manners. I was hoping to say hello to him. Rick smiled. I don't know how well you know Jake, but he's left the country now. He moved to Canada. I think he has a job there, 
Toronto, I think. Rick made as if to get up. He'd managed to sound convincing. He knew he'd not be able to stand up to any form of cross-examination. Thanks, replied Manners. He didn't believe what he was being told, but it would be decidedly better to simply disengage from this line of inquiry and instead to start the tracing of Darren Collins' secret. Manners decided to leave the club. As he walked away, Rick let out a sigh of relief. He would stay for at least another half hour and then tomorrow phone in sick to his office, thereby giving Jake a longer period with his car. Manners had decided to follow the trail now. Jake Lambus was no longer relevant to him, but the address in Zurich was now critical. He would be moving his centre of operations to the location identified by the information on the hard drive. It was Zurich. The main thing he would need to do would be to ensure that whatever was stored in Zurich would get destroyed. The trail to the old empire required to go cold. Anything to do with Jake and his accomplices could be handled as an afterthought. Manners still had the backpack containing the new laptop on which he had copied the data from the hard drive. He had already copied the content of the hard drive to a backup and then stored it in a locker for safekeeping. The laptop was a useful asset for the next stage of his job, which would he would take as carry-on luggage for his flight to Zurich. He headed for Heathrow Airport and stopped overnight in a nearby hotel, prepared for the first Zurich flight early in the morning. <laughs> Thank you.